On July 30th, on my Get Vocal stream, author Elaine Smith, a retired FBI special agent, will be joining me on my Get Vocal stream. We're going to be discussing her book, A Gun in My Gucci. Don't forget to join me 7 p.m. Central, 8 Eastern, if you want a chance to win a copy of her book. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. For most people, when they bury their loved ones, they expect to grieve and for the deceased to rest in peace. Unfortunately, throughout history and even today, the deceased and their families fall victim to grave robbers or body snatchers. Most people are not aware this gruesome practice still occurs, but in the mid-2000s, thousands of families discovered their loved ones' corpses had been desecrated. Okay, on to the show. Many people are familiar with the names Burke and Hare, which was the title of a 2010 movie starring Simon Pegg, somewhat based on the escapades of the real-life Burke and Hare. In the late 17th century, medical students and physicians had a problem of there not being enough cadavers to study. Inter-resurrectionists, also known as ghouls, who would rob graves and sell to the medical schools or doctors. In Edinburgh, 1752, Helen Torrance and Jean Waldy skipped the grave robbing and went straight to murder. When they murdered a young boy who was around eight or nine and sold his body for two shillings, ten pence, they were captured and hanged within days. Seventy-six years later, William Burke and William Hare, also in Edinburgh, began the same thing. They kept their crimes a secret for over a year thanks to the assistance from their wives, Helen McDougall and Margaret Hare. In late 1827, Hare had sold a corpse and decided it was a good way to make money. Finding fresh corpses proved difficult, however, because of the demand and because corpses were watched closely. Therefore, in January 1828, Burke and Hare decided to provide Robert Knox with fresh corpses. Hare would scour the streets of Edinburgh looking for victims that were easy prey like the elderly, the infirm, or just the drunks. Once he found someone, he would befriend them and take them back to Log's Lodge House, where he and Burke would ply them with alcohol, before Hare killed them by suffocation. The pair were caught, and with them, Robert Knox and the two wives. Their trial was held in December 1828, and only William Burke was sentenced to death. He was hanged in a public hanging the following month, and just a few days later, his body was dissected in front of another huge crowd. Legend has it that the anatomist dipped his quill in Burke's blood, writing, This is written with the blood of William Burke, who was hanged at Edinburgh. This blood was taken from his head. Whether that's true or not, what is true is Burke's skeleton was given to the Edinburgh Medical School or it can still be seen today. Body snatching in America is not quite as well-known as Burke and Hare, but there were numerous cases of grave robbing in the early years of the United States, early enough that Alexander Hamilton was present during a riot that broke out at Columbia University. 
Grave robbing continued for many years until the practice eventually died down, when people began donating their bodies to science. However, just as it's implied in the urban legend of the stolen kidney in a hotel room, nefarious organ and tissue thieves still exist in America and throughout the world. In 1986, a leaking package at a Kentucky post office led to the horrific discovery of five human heads inside. Upon investigation, the heads were traced back to Martin Spector, a physician in Philadelphia, who was a Center City ear, nose, and throat doctor. He had been providing other doctors with body parts for over 20 years. He would pay diners, morgue employees who readied bodies for autopsy and washed them afterwards, $150 per head, $65 per arm, and $20 for a set of ears. He was eventually fined a little over $30,000 and sentenced to 1,600 hours of community service. He was 70 at the time of his sentencing. Dr. Spector was most annoyed that one of his staff sent the package with the wrong address. Dr. Spector's operation, however, was nothing like the one discovered in New York in the mid-2000s. Joseph Nacelli owned a funeral home, Daniel George and Son, in Brooklyn, New York. But in late 2003, early 2004, he sold this business to Robert Nelms and Deborah Johnson, who were married at the time of the sale. Robert and Deborah owned several funeral homes, but Joseph Nacelli stayed on to help run the business. They also gave him free run of the funeral home. Deborah became suspicious after several of their clients complained to her that their prepaid funeral arrangements were not being kept. These should have been deducted from the purchase price of the funeral home, but were not. She touched the leg of a deceased client one day to find that the leg had PVC pipe in it, rather than a bone. She finally went to the police after finding a secret room on the second floor that was essentially an embalming room. There was a table on the first floor that would rise hydraulically to the second so the deceased could be harvested. The room looked like an operating room and had tubes to a toilet so that the blood and other bodily fluids could be flushed. Once Deborah contacted the police, Patricia O'Brien was assigned to the case and the investigation began in earnest. Patricia and Deborah found FedEx records showing shipments to businesses Deborah did not recognize. When Patricia took the records back to the police department, she found that most of them were tissue banks or other businesses involved in tissue transplants. Tissue harvesting differs from organ harvesting. Tissue refers to anything other than the organs in the body and can mean tendons, skin, veins, cartilage, and ligaments. It's been stated that one body can harvest enough tissue to help 80 people. One body can also have a payout of more than 80,000. Technically, you cannot make money on tissue or organs, but there are fees associated with the removal, transportation, and surgery. According to NPR, each vertebra in the neck can be worth $1,300, the pelvis can cost $6,000, and an elbow can cost $17,000. What possibly started as an earnest business to do right and help others very quickly devolved into an illegal but lucrative business started and helmed by one man, Michael Master Marino. Michael Master Marino seemed like the typical boy next door who was successful in life. However, like everything with this case, there was much more to Michael. 
he was married to Barbara and they had two sons. The couple's friends said they were like Ken and Barbie. Michael had trained as an oral surgeon and had co-written a book about dental implants. It all started going wrong, though, when he developed a backache in May 2000 and became addicted to Demerol. Soon, everyone who worked with Dr. Marino knew he had a problem. He fell asleep during a procedure one day while standing up. Another time, he walked out of the bathroom and fell to the floor with the scrubs down around his ankles. The incident that brought this to Barbara's attention was when he passed out in the bathroom with a hypodermic needle in his arm. It all came to a head professionally, though, when he performed surgery while under the influence and caused damage to a patient's nerve, causing a permanent droop. He was soon arrested and checked himself into rehab for three days. Michael's wife became concerned about him one night when he didn't come home. She took their small sons out to look for him and saw him on the side of the road, surrounded by blue lights. That wasn't all. He wasn't alone. He was with another woman. He was charged with possession of Demerol and a hypodermic needle, and being under the influence of a controlled substance. He soon realized he was going to have to actually go to rehab and stick it out, to get out of the controlled substance charges and to keep his marriage intact. He did, and managed to sweep the charges under the rug and saved his marriage. However, he did have to surrender his medical and dental license. He had a family and, more importantly, a lavish lifestyle to keep up. He had to find a way to make lots of money fast, so he looked through the contacts he made while practicing oral surgery. He quickly found Regeneration Technologies Incorporated, or RTI, and realized they were one of the largest tissue banks in the U.S. He had used their products and dental implants and decided to become a provider of parts. He obtained a New York license for tissue harvesting in 2002, which was the same year he lost his dental license. RTI was impressed with his work and even more so when he announced to them he would like to work from funeral homes. Michael created Biomedical Tissue Services, LTD, or BTS. Michael paid undertakers $1,000 per body. He claimed this was the amount set by the American Association of Tissue Banks and included the fees for the use of a funeral home, $500, the cost of body delivery, $250, and the cost of body disposal or cleanup, another $250. But... BTS received at least $7,000 for each body they harvested. When the business was new, Michael actually did most of the work himself. Michael partnered with Joseph Nacelli to work out of Daniel George and Son Funeral Home, and soon demand overwhelmed his ability to keep up. Michael put feelers out there and soon hired Lee Crusetta, who was a nurse at Beth Israel. I'm going to pause the case right here so you can hear a word from our sponsors. Lee became interested in orthopedics because he wanted to work with power tools. He became an AATB certified tissue bank specialist. However, before he met Michael, he never worked in funeral homes. He took the job because he was in financial straits with four children and a wife who had just lost her job. Lee was under the impression the families received some sort of financial compensation, 
whether it was a discounted funeral service or an upgraded casket. When questioned, though, he wasn't sure if this ever actually happened. Lee explained they had a contract with RTI for long bones. If the casket was open for the service, Lee would take the bones at the hip and leave the foot intact. PVC pipe would replace the bones, which is standard practice in the industry. With pants on the body, no one could tell that the leg bones were missing. After the case was broken wide open and bodies were exhumed, investigators found corpses with gloves stuffed into the body. Lee denied treating a corpse this way. However, if a body was scheduled for cremation, Lee could use his power tools to remove the spine, and he did state he placed a rag in the hole left behind, just so body fluids wouldn't drip onto the cardboard box used in cremations. Philadelphia, another area they operated from, did not even use cardboard boxes. They literally rolled these bodies on the stretcher to the crematorium a block away. At the Daniel George location in Brooklyn, neighbors claimed there were often corpses left on the sidewalk, with vans pulling in and out at all hours of the night. They were soon busy enough to require another cutter, so Joseph introduced a funeral home director, Chris Alderossi, into the business. Lee and Chris, both labeled cutters, were working full-time harvesting tissue. At this time, it all seemed above board and done in accordance with the regulations surrounding the tissue industry. When the case was referred to the district attorney to investigate, they did their due diligence and researched these regulations. However, while looking at the paperwork they had confiscated, they soon realized the signatures on the consent forms were off. Signatures didn't match, which caused them to look deeper. They soon realized that the ages and causes of death on the forms were not accurate. For example, the most famous example of an illegally obtained body was that of Alastair Cook, who died at age 95 from lung cancer that had metastasized to the bones. Alastair Cook was the former host of PBS Masterpiece Theater. The paperwork shaved 10 years off his age and said he had died from cardiac arrest. This bothered Lee, who said that often the forms would say cardiac arrest, but they would open the body and find lesions on the bones. He was with Michael at a convention in Florida when Chris called Michael to tell him he had Alastair Cook on the table, so what should he do? All Michael said was, proceed. The DA's investigation into the illegally obtained tissue was assisted by Dr. Michael Bauer of Colorado. His own investigation started because he had a question about something on the form, and he called the phone number of the treating physician on the form. The number was incorrect, so he called the next of kin. That ended up being a business, so he wasn't sure what to do. He went home that night, and the next day was panicked. He called all the numbers he had for 28 donors, and all of them were incorrect. He reached out to Michael, who cast the blame at the funeral homes, several different ones. Dr. Bauer countered with the fact that Michael's initials were beside each phone number. Michael then severed all ties with Dr. Bauer, who contacted some of the tissue banks to alert them to the tissue. Three of these banks stopped working with BTS. The FDA investigated BTS in 2003 for improper sterilization of equipment, and inadequate explanations of how they disposed of tissue that was diseased. However, Michael vowed he had corrected these issues, so the FDA backed off. They did not shut down BTS until 2006, 
after the claims of forgeries came to light. Another issue of the BTS harvested issue was that the funeral homes typically did not have the proper refrigeration for harvested tissue. Tissue is also supposed to be harvested within 24 hours, but sometimes this was not adhered to. Lee Crusetta said, All these bodies, they seemed okay to me. I never saw a body decomposing. The four major players of BTS were indicted on nearly 200 charges stemming from the illegal harvest practices, including charges of forgery, possessing forged documents, body stealing, opening graves, grand larceny, and reckless endangerment. The trials did not come quickly. Lee Crusetta took a plea deal in exchange for testifying against Michael Master Marino, Joseph Nicelli, and Chris Alderossi. Charges were also filed in Philadelphia, where the company often harvested tissue. Lee received six years and eight months for the crimes in both states, a sentence that he would serve in New York. Michael Master Marino denied culpability until immediately before the trial, when he finally pled guilty and received 18 to 54 years. Joseph Nicelli suffered a fall off a roof while awaiting trial, so his trial was delayed a little longer. He decided to take a plea agreement as well, receiving 24 years for his part in the crimes. Chris Alderossi went to trial and was found guilty, being handed a sentence of up to 27 years for his part. However, the story isn't over there. There were an estimated 1,077 bodies that were harvested, and several of these were exhumed, causing more grief to the families. But aside from the next of kin, there were potentially thousands of living victims of these crimes, the people who received tissue from BTS. Letters were sent to the recipients of tissue from BTS. These letters advised the recipients to be tested for certain diseases, such as HIV, hepatitis, and syphilis. One of these was Dana Ryan, who received cadaver bone to repair a herniated disc in her back. After she was tested, she discovered she had hepatitis B, and the only place she could have received it was from the bone graft. Numerous lawsuits were filed against BTS and Michael Master Marino. There were confirmed cases of HIV and syphilis, which resulted from infected grafts. Before it was all over, 14 people were charged in the body snatchers case. In what some call an ironic twist, Michael developed liver cancer, which metastasized to his bones. He died on July 7, 2013, while still in prison. He can still be seen in the documentary The Body Snatchers of New York on Amazon Prime. In the documentary, Michael does not appear to be remorseful at all, and even told NPR during an interview, this case was completely blown out of proportion. They made me out to be like I was doing something completely outrageous. Ironically, the original whistleblower, Deborah Johnson, and her husband, Robert Nelms, found themselves in hot water just a few years after Michael Master Marino was sentenced. The pair purchased a funeral home and cemetery in Indiana, where they apparently were living during the body snatchers case. They were not using a perpetual care trust fund in accordance with the law and were investigated in 2008. It was soon discovered that they had taken $22 million from the funeral home, including money to pay back the loan for the business and money to build a house. To add insult to injury, Deborah was fired from the funeral home when the allegations began, but was not told by her husband. 
She then found out they were not legally wed because he had never filed their marriage paperwork. Because they were not married, Deborah said she would testify against Robert if the charges against her were dropped. All charges were dropped, but Robert ended up not going to trial, taking a plea deal to spend four years in jail and four years in home detention. Deborah also received a $175,000 settlement when she filed a lawsuit against the funeral home for her termination and for not paying her as required. From disreputable funeral homes to immoral entrepreneurs, death is apparently a lucrative business. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate, subscribe, and positively review the show on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help us out. You can find us on most social media platforms, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast. You can also find us on Instagram at True Crime Fan Club Pod. And of course, our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was researched and written by Susie St. John, content editing by Brittany Martinez, produced by the best in the business, Nico at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkofDreams.com. <laughs>